The turnout did not go up. The turnout went down slightly, which is perhaps disappointing for some people who were looking forward to more participation. But there were also a number of really big surprises in the election. So you had some incumbents being knocked off. The mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, being knocked off by Ken Sim. You had the mayor of Langford, Stu Young, being defeated there after being in power for a long time. So you had some situations in some municipalities where there was quite a wholesale change on council level as well as at the mayoral level. Even though the numbers didn't go up in terms of total turnout, the people who turned out wanted change. I'm Peter McCulley. On this edition of Today in BC, we're talking about the results of the BC municipal elections with Bruce Cameron, a black press columnist who's been a pollster and a strategist for more than 35 years, working for Gallup, Decima, and Angus Reid, before founding his own consultancy, Return on Insight. We'll also chat about Alberta's new premier when Today in BC continues. CanadianEvergreen.com is your trusted news source for all things green, offering up-to-date news and stories from Canada's booming cannabis industry. Content you can trust from Black Press Media. Thanks for being with us today, Bruce. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you. As always, the B.C. municipal elections have told some interesting stories. The most interesting, I guess, is usually the turnout by the voters. How did we do this time compared to 2018? It's down slightly from 2018, and there were a lot of people hoping that it would go up. The latest numbers show that it's 37%, so it was 39%. Now, a lot of municipalities, though, are well below that. Some of the bigger municipalities are boosting those numbers up to an average of around 37% for the local elections just concluded. What did you make of the fact that we couldn't beat the 39% mark in 2022? There are a lot of factors that go into turnouts. It's difficult to say exactly. In some instances, the turnout is expected to go up when you have a very hotly contested mayoral race in particular. The mayoralty is one of the key things that swings the vote. In races that I've worked on elsewhere in Alberta, in Edmonton and in Calgary, whenever there's an open mayor seat, the turnout typically goes up. But there, the turnout rate for local elections is often around 30%. doesn't even hit close to 40%, which it has here. I find that odd because municipal taxes are the taxes that you as a taxpayer have some direct control over in terms of voting for what you want or how you think they should be spent. Yeah, and there are many things locally that can be affected by your vote very directly, as opposed to some of the more peripheral things. Some people may consider them more important. I mean, you've got overall taxation rates and foreign policy and policies around justice that would be provincial or federal matters. But when you get down to, is your garbage going to get picked up? And Is there going to be bus service outside your house or not? Those are all things that really do impact your quality of life. And yet, most people don't bother to turn up. Two out of three, pretty much, don't bother to turn up to vote. Now, does renting a home as opposed to being a homeowner figure into any of those numbers at all? Yes, typically, homeowners tend to vote in higher proportions than renters. And the thinking there is that they have a stake in the community. They're paying property taxes, and they may have been there longer as well, because often people will rent when they're first coming into a community. Those people would tend to not vote 
because they're just not connected with the local issues and don't feel informed enough to make a vote. Were there a few municipalities in BC where the voters came out and beat the average and beat it handily? There were a couple that stand out. Vancouver itself stood out. I'll come back to that. But Machosen, actually, 47%, almost half, came out to vote. It may just be a bit of an anomaly. In the previous year, in 2018, that high number was Oak Bay. And that was an election in 2018 where an incumbent mayor was turfed and the challenger, Kevin Murdoch, won. Now, he didn't run this year in Oak Bay. Kevin Murdoch ran again. So he won against the challenger in 2018. He ran again in 2022 with no opponent. And so the turnout rate in Oak Bay went from 53% to 33%. So that's a good indicator that when there isn't a mayor's race, it really does drop the numbers. But coming back to Vancouver, that's a huge number of the voters in a local elections. And Ken Sim won there. And his whole slate, the ABC party, really won across the board. It was a fascinating election. The turnout rate there was 37%. And there are a lot of people in Vancouver and elsewhere very concerned about crime and safety. And that was a big part of his campaign. Of course, he had run before in 2018 and came pretty close to knocking off Kennedy Stewart. But uh, this time, it was a very clear victory for him. And policing was a big issue in Surrey as well. It was. The police decision there, Brenda Locke defeated the incumbent, Doug McCallum, who had basically started the process to get Surrey police to take over from the RCMP. And Brenda Locke's campaign promise was to undo that, even though rough estimates are there's about $67 million that's been spent to try to put in a Surrey police force so far. So it'll be interesting to see whether that can actually be done. But clearly, Surrey, with its crime rates, it's a hot-button issue. In Vancouver, where Ken Sim won, he committed to adding 100 police and 100 mental health nurses to deal with the crime and homelessness issues and the drug problems in Vancouver. And it's something that really, I think, struck a chord with many Vancouver voters. Kelowna, Tom Dias won the election there for mayor, and his main campaign platform revolved around public safety and having more healthcare nurses, more mental health nurses on the street dealing with people, helping them rather than waiting for problems to emerge. I live in a fairly small municipality, but still there was 14, 15 people running for six positions on municipal council. So do you think that when somebody looks down the ballot and they see an overwhelming number of candidates, that that's a negative? I'm also thinking of the size of Vancouver, where they don't have the word system, despite the geographical size of the city. It's definitely a concern. In Vancouver, there were 58 candidates for council. You could select 10. That's just a huge number for people to wade through and try to figure out. Anybody trying to make an informed vote, you have to try to determine which 10 of those 58 do you think line up with your priorities or your views. And that could explain why the party system has emerged in Vancouver more so than it has elsewhere in local elections. That was true a number of years ago where the NPA kind of swept the slate. Now it's ABC. But there are a number of other parties there in Vancouver that have gone by the wayside. There was a party called Team that basically had a really tough time. I think what it shows is that the election, especially revolving around crime and safety in many of these places, the local election, I think it portends poorly for the NDP if there's a provincial election coming up. 
because many of their candidates lost and many of the parties they backed lost in these local elections. I noticed that there were 40 some mayors that were returned by acclamation. Is that a sign they're doing an excellent job or that local politics struggles in some areas just to find participation? I'm sure they would say nobody ran against me because I was doing such a perfect job. But the reality is that number hasn't really gone up or down. It's about the same as it was in 2018, the number of acclamations. Unless there's a real big concern or perceived mismanagement, people tend to be fine with the incumbent in power, especially a mayor. And that's why mayors sometimes have the longest terms, much more longevity than provincial politicians or federal politicians in a lot of cases. If there's no real concern and there's only about a third of the people voting, they get reelected or people say, why would I even try? And so that number doesn't surprise me. People want to increase it, of course. But I think you're typically going to get a number of people just winning because there's no opponent if there's no real concern. Things are fine in the eyes of the voter. On the other side of that coin, and you touched on it briefly, was there were a number of incumbent mayors who were defeated at the polls and rather handily. Do you see any trends there? There was one in particular in Langford where longtime mayor Stu Young was defeated. There were people who were really wanting him to be defeated. He'd been there a long time. The turnout went from 18% in the last election in 2018 to 24%, and he got defeated. So it wasn't a lot of people. It wasn't as if there was a landslide of people to the polls, but it was enough for people to coalesce around his opponent and kick him out. There was really some pushback about his pro-development stance and how much development is too much development in Langford. So in the local context, that was really the driving issue there. It's one of the fastest growing communities in Canada. Growth and development is obviously going to be a key concern there. During the pandemic, social media really exploded, especially on the negative side, of course, with people venting and politicians in the crosshairs. What long-term effect do you think that social media might have on people who will be thinking about putting their names forward, if any? It's an excellent question because I think that there's a really negative effect of social media on electoral participation. Anybody who puts their name forward for anything at any level ends up leaving themselves open to vicious attacks online. You've seen it, that people can be quite vicious when they're attacking people online. And it's more so even than they would in a town hall or a council meeting, because there's an anonymity about being able to say nasty things and attack people online that allows people way more leeway than they normally would in a social setting. So it's a really negative, almost cancerous force in a lot of ways. It's been used positively to get people out and vote and get turnout up among younger people or specific audiences in the past in different elections. But overall, I would say social media has had a negative effect and it's dampened the enthusiasm people have to put their name forward because they'll become a target. I don't know if you saw the story in our paper from Fernie, but there was a local politician there who said he couldn't wait to leave the council chambers. His term was up the past few years, he said, had been such a nightmare. The councillor's name is Morgan Pulsiver, and he said he was disappointed by the way that the city staff, elected officials, and service workers were treated in Fernie. I saw that article, and it's a fascinating piece because he also made the point that he's living on the outskirts of Fernie, a working family, because he can't afford to live in Fernie. 
housing and affordability was a key issue. And yet every time he tried to do something on council, he was met with all kinds of pushback, not only from other council members, but from other people in the public. And the viciousness of the social media attacks in particular really unsettles him. And that's a very worrying trend. We have to try to stem that. It's just not acceptable to attack people for having a different point of view and say all these negative and in many cases slanderous or totally false things about people online. I think that that toxic environment is something that's going to be a real problem and it will only result in lower turnouts if we don't address it. One of the other things I noted in one of our Black Press newspapers during the election was a poll asking readers if it was time to do away with election signs. 80% were in favor. What's your reaction to that, Bruce? I saw a fascinating poll done of signs once in a Calgary election. Holster, who I know, had a team go around and count the number of signs that people had, not just on public property, but on private property, because it's a more of an indication of the level of support, because you have to agree to put your sign there. The results really mirrored fairly closely the electoral results. I'm always fascinated. I always take a look at it and see what's happening in election campaign, especially in terms of where the momentum is going. If you start seeing a bunch of signs going up at the second part of a campaign, that campaign has some momentum. Whether they have enough to win or not is the big question, but it definitely is an indicator of momentum. People don't like the sort of visual clutter, and I think that's why many would say no to it. But it is really something that allows campaigns to have a bit of a focus on identifying who their supporters are and getting them out to the polls. When Today in BC continues, local politicians debate health care, and Bruce Cameron gives us his take on the latest Alberta Premier. Discover what's happening around our province with todayinbc.com. Sign up today to get the latest news right to your inbox and never miss the news that's important to you and your family. From community news in your neighborhood to what's happening in our province, your source for daily news is todayinbc.com. I'm Peter McCulley. Today in BC is a Black Press Media podcast. Bruce, we talked about social media and the effect it has on candidates and those who might be thinking of running. What can we do to attract more quality candidates into political life at the municipal level? Many municipalities over the past few years raised council pay to make it more attractive, but obviously more is needed than that. I think council pay remuneration is a definite good start. There are big opponents to that who don't want politicians to get any more money. But unless we make the job, which is often a pretty thankless task of being at council meetings and dealing with all that, if we make it so that somebody who is trying to support their family can actually do that, then we will attract people with a different set of views than the professional politicians. It's not to say that everybody who runs is a professional politician, but you have to have a certain amount of time on your hand to commit to that without needing a huge amount of compensation for it, given what you could do or how much you could make doing something else. Attracting more quality candidates is going to be a long-term thing, but it starts with education, I think. And there are some professors in BC talking about whether we should really be educating people about what local governments do. What is their role? What are they responsible for? Because the more we clarify that, the more interest there will be in who is making those decisions for us. 
Well, right along that line, I thought it was pretty interesting that both the electorate and the local politicians in this last election were ready, willing, and able to debate issues that are really more in the provincial and federal arenas. Healthcare and affordable housing jumped to mind. Yes, and healthcare is definitely not a local issue. There obviously are certain stress points locally where a hospital needs extra support or more staff or housing for the staff. But that's where uh, housing is an interesting one. There are a lot of things that local governments can do in terms of zoning and bylaws to enable housing or to actually completely put a lid on the number of new houses built. So housing, I could see, it is more of a provincial responsibility, but a lot of voters do not know the lines, who is responsible for what. They just assume that if you're running, you should be doing this or that or the next thing. I think healthcare is one of those exceptions. I don't think many people believe that local politicians have anything to do with healthcare decisions. But with housing, it is more complex. And of course, housing these days in BC is a major issue on all kinds of fronts, both affordable housing as well as workforce housing. That's why we see that primarily provincial issue being raised locally. So if our average turnout is 37, 39% for a municipal election, how do we get more people to vote? And what about voting online? If we can move thousands of dollars around from one account to another, to the Cayman Islands, back to Vancouver or wherever it happens to be, why can't we go in and vote for our school trustee online? That's an excellent question. There are some critics who say, oh, there are all kinds of technological challenges and ways in which that system might be corrupted or that the trust wouldn't be there. So that would be one issue, but making voting easier, first of all, like whether it's online or advanced voting, mail-in voting, I think the more ways we have to vote and the greater opportunity people are given to vote even ahead of election day, the better. That's been proven in many elections. And I think that because of the pandemic, with the increase in mail-in voting, we've seen that experiment work. I see more of that. Some people are talking about potentially even lowering the voting age. I'm not sure how much that would help because typically older people vote in greater numbers than younger people. That's partly because they've been around longer. They're more interested in the things that are happening around them and maybe have more time to take a look at that. Simplifying the ballots. We talked about it before where you've got the crazy case in Vancouver where you've got 58 candidates for local council and you have to select 10. That's too complex. That should be simplified so that people can vote. I really think, though, that the long-term one that's not as sexy, but that may yield positive results is to raise the awareness of the role of local government on a consistent basis in the schools and in public campaigns about government. And that would be maybe a group like Civic Info BC that collate and, and analyze election results, doing just a public service announcements about the difference between local governments, what local governments do, and how you can get involved. And then there's mandatory voting, like in Australia. (laughs) Yes, of course. They make a party out of it in Australia. It's it's quite something. There are barbecues because you have to vote. So if you're (laughs) going to go there and they have a big party in many cases to go out and vote. It's an interesting one. I'm not sure whether that would work here. Voting is a right and people should be voting. Increasing the vote participation voluntarily is probably a preferred way in Canada compared to mandatory voting. I would agree with that. But it's working for Australia. Yes. So Bruce is a pollster reviewing candidates' trends results for the last 35 years. Can you give us your snapshot, your 
uptake on the BC municipal election that we just completed? The turnout did not go up. The turnout went down slightly, which is perhaps disappointing for some people who were looking forward to more participation. But there were also a number of really big surprises in the election. So you had some incumbents being knocked off. The mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, being knocked off by Ken Sim. You had the mayor of Langford, Stu Young, being defeated there after being in power for a long time. So you had some situations in some municipalities where there was quite a wholesale change on council level as well as at the mayoral level. Even though the numbers didn't go up in terms of total turnout, the people who turned out wanted change. Bruce, as a pollster and a commentator, you've worked in Alberta and British Columbia, worked on some campaigns in B.C., provincially and locally. Plus, you've analyzed the last two federal elections for black press, so you follow politics pretty closely. I'd like to have your take on a couple of things. Jason Kenney entered the Premier's office in Alberta as virtually the Teflon man. What happened? I'm sure there'll be a few books written about this, but it was like watching a disaster film unfold in slow motion. Almost every single thing he did and said, he got into a pitched battle with nurses and doctors during a pandemic. He refused to move quickly on dealing with the pandemic. He had all kinds of people appointed to his office and hired to his office. The premier's office was so bloated with his friends and the salaries they were paid were crazy. Now, the total amount spent is a rounding error. It's the principle of it. Here is a guy who united the conservatives in Alberta and he squandered it almost immediately as once he got power. And now he's left Alberta in fiscally a very good situation. Nothing to do with him. It's actually the price of oil and nothing to do with his stewardship. But basically, they're in a very good position fiscally. And yet the person that they've chosen, the UCP, to lead the party now, Daniel Smith, instead of Kenny, is committed to another pitched battle with the federal government. It's absolutely crazy. And I'm not sure the math adds up to a victory for the UCP in the next election if she continues on this path. Danielle Smith made it to the Premier's office in kind of a roundabout fashion. Right now, she's running in a by-election, and she's not running in Calgary Elbow, where she lives, because the people in Calgary Elbow, even who would vote Conservative or UCP, do not like her very much. It's very clear. She was a Wild Rose representative on the outskirts of Calgary many years ago. In the opposition to the progressive conservatives, she was seen to be a real leadership potential for the Wild Rose, and she crossed the floor to join Jim Prentice's progressive conservatives. So there are a lot of people with long memories in, on the far right in Alberta who remember that and do not like that. And yet she has tried to outright the right on so many things, whether it's praising the unvaxxed or going after the Trudeau government and trying to create some constitutional crisis. The problem that Daniel Smith has is that she ran so far to the right to gain the leadership position that it's going to be tough to tack back to the middle to actually be elected by the majority of Albertans. And even though Alberta gets a reputation as a very far-right province, you look at Calgary and Edmonton, and the politics are quite mixed. There are a number of progressives and left-wing people who are elected at council and mayor. There are a lot of people there who are not about to swallow what the UCP is trying to administer. It will be interesting to see whether Rachel Notley can capitalize on that. The last time she did win, it was because people trusted her 
more than they did the others. They trusted her. They may not have liked all of her policies, but they trusted her. And I think it'll come down to that. She's definitely a mercurial leader who's going to attract a lot of attention, both positive and negative. Bruce, as always, it's great to have you with us. I thought a great way to tie up our talk today would be to ask you, if you could have dinner with any political figure, living or dead, who would it be? Thank you for inviting me. It's always a pleasure. But yeah, why don't you answer that first? It's a tough question. You go first. It actually is a bit of a tough question because there are so many the world over. But I think probably because of my age and growing up in that period of time, I would have to say uh, I would want to have dinner with JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, simply because he was the youngest president ever elected. He was elected on the first ballot, which was unheard of in those days. He was such an important cog in the wheel of the civil rights and equal rights movements in the 60s. Yeah, that would be fascinating. You know, I'm glad I asked first because he would have been high on my list too. I was wondering, I was thinking that would be fascinating. I'd like to talk to him about the Cuban Missile Crisis, how we navigated that. What wasn't in the history books that he might shed some light on. In that vein, I'm a big student of history and particularly the history of the Second World War. My dinner guest would be Winston Churchill. As long as he brought his finest claret and whiskey with him, it would be a great night. He had so many wonderful quips about things, and it would be fascinating to hear his take on what happened during the Second World War, what was written, what wasn't written. And I think generally he would be quite the entertaining dinner guest. I'd like to thank Bruce Cameron for being with us on this edition of Today in BC. If you have suggestions or comments, send a voice message to podcast at blackpress.ca. You may be part of our podcast mailbag segment. You'll find Today in BC podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, and Google Podcasts.